Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. How you doing today, my good friends? Thank you again for swinging through. You know, I hear people talk a whole lot about the Wild West, about how it produced the greatest American legends to ever exist. Most folks don't know that a good number of those legends were born right here in the Appalachian Mountains. Stephen Austin, hero of the Republic of Texas, for example, was born and raised in Virginia. Well, up to a certain age, that is. You've no doubt heard about a small town named after him in Virginia called Austinville. Or, as we locals call it, Austinsville. There are many such examples that I could get into, and uh, maybe that'll be an upcoming episode. I contend, though, that some of the most legendary characters to ever exist are the ones who lived right here in the Appalachians, as we who live here for it know very well that the Wild West didn't have anything at all on what happened around here. Now, in all fairness, some of these characters might not have been born here, but they were raised here and from a very young age, that is, and the mountains is where they called home. Come on in, have a seat, and let me tell you about one such unique character that called Kentucky his home. March 14, 1863, John Luther Jones was born in a rural part of southeastern Missouri. When John was a young boy, his father Frank, who was a school teacher, and his mother Ann figured that the backwoods of Missouri offered very little opportunity for their family, so the Jones family up and moved all the way to Casey, Kentucky. Now, John's birth location is in 
some dispute there. So there's some claims that he wasn't born until the family had actually moved to Casey, but most contend that it was indeed Missouri. So we'll just leave that there for the consideration as the fact remains that he was raised in Kentucky from a very young age. While growing up, John became extremely interested in the railroad and wanted to become an engineer one day. The American Railroad passenger system was a relatively new and exciting mode of transportation as people were able to travel great distances at what was considered then high speeds. After all, high speed was considered anything above a horse trot at that time. He dreamed of someday operating a great engine and being like his heroes who drove those massive marvels and were highly respected and praised for their work. At the age of 15, young Jones struck out on his own, like most teenagers of the day, and he moved to Columbus, Kentucky, where he found employment at the Mobile and Ohio Railroad. First as a telegraph operator for the M&O, he was proud to be from Casey, Kentucky, and told everybody that he was born and raised there and described the beauty of the place that he called home. In fact, he talked about it so much that they started calling him Casey, and that's the name that stuck. Casey was quite a good telegrapher, and but he wanted to be where the action was. He didn't want to be left at the station while all those powerful iron horses rolled down the tracks. Casey wanted to be the one at the controls, so he left work as a telegrapher and moved up to flagman and then brakeman, which required him to move again, this time to Jackson, Tennessee, where something else other than the railroad would finally cross his tracks. While living in a boarding house at Jackson, Casey met and fell in love with Joanne Janie Brady, the daughter of the proprietor. The couple wed on November 26, 1886, and moved into a place of their own in Jackson. They would have two sons and a daughter together. Taking on a job as fireman, the number two position in the cab of the great locomotive, Casey continued to excel. The work was hot, dirty, and laborious, as he shoveled tons of coal to feed the firebox and make the steam that would propel the locomotive forward as it pulled a train. Casey was successful at M&O and quickly moved up the ranks. In summer of 1887, a yellow fever epidemic struck, and many train crews on the neighboring Illinois Central Railroad and provided an unexpected opportunity for the faster promotion of firemen in that line. And on March 1, 1888, Casey switched to the IC firing a freight locomotive between Jackson, Tennessee and Water Valley, Mississippi. Wasn't long before Casey was promoted to engineer, which was his lifelong goal, on February 23, 1891. Casey reached the pinnacle of the railroad profession as an expert locomotive engineer for the IC. Railroading was a talent, and Casey was recognized by his peers as one of the best engineers in the business. He soon gained a reputation as an engineer who would always stay on schedule, even if it meant pushing the train to great and sometimes dangerous speeds at trait that made him a popular employee. He was so punctual 
It was said that people set their watches by. His work in Jackson primarily involved freight service between Jackson and Water Valley, Mississippi. Both locations were busy and important stops for the IC, and he developed close ties with between 1890 and 1900. Casey was also famous for his peculiar skill with the train whistle. He modified his whistle. It was made of six thin tubes bound together, the shortest being half the length of the longest. This unique sound involved a long, drawn-out note that began softly, rose, and then died away to a whisper, a sound that became his trademark. The sound of it was described as sort of a whippoorwill call. People living along the IC line between Jackson and Water Valley would turn over in their beds late at night when they heard it and say, there goes Casey, as he roared by. During the world's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893, the IC was charged with providing commuter service for the thousands of visitors to the fairground. A call was sent out for a trainman who wanted to work there, and Casey answered it. Spending a very nice summer there with his wife, he shuttled many people from the Van Buren Street to Jackson Park during the exposition. It was his first experience as an engineer in passenger service, and man, he liked it. At the exposition, he became acquainted with number 638, a big new freight engine that the ICA had on display as the latest and greatest in technological advancement in the train field. He had eight drive wheels and two pilot wheels, a 280 is what they call it, a consolidation type. At the closing of the fair, number 638 was due to be sent to Water Valley for service in the Jackson District, and Casey asked for the permission to drive it, and he took it back to Water Valley. And its first run was 589 miles with Casey Jones at the throttle to Watertown. Casey liked number 638 and liked working in the Jackson District because his family was there. They had once moved to Water Valley but returned to Jackson, which he felt more at home. Casey drove the engine until he transferred to Memphis in February of 1900. Number 638 stayed in the Water Valley. That year, he drove the engine that became most closely associated with him. That was engine number 382, known affectionately as old 382, or the Cannonball. It was a steam-driven Rogers 460 10-wheeler with six drivers, each approximately six feet high. It was bought new in 1898 from the Rogers Locomotive Works. It was a very powerful engine for the time. His regular fireman on number 638 was his close friend, John Wesley McKinney, with whom he worked exclusively from about 1897 until he went into the passenger run out of Memphis. It's there that he met an even closer friend who he worked with. His next fireman was Simeon T. or Sim Webb, in 1900. A little-known example of Casey's heroic instincts in action, as described by his biographer and friend Fred G. or Fred J. Lee in his book Casey Jones, Epic of the American Railroad, he recounts an incident in 1895 as Casey's train rolled into Michigan City, Mississippi. He had left the cab in charge of a fellow engineer Bob Stevenson, 
who had reduced the speed significantly for Casey to walk around safely on the running board to oil the relief valves. He walked from the running board to the steam chest and then to the pilot beam to adjust the spark screen. Spark screen, it's like one of those things that you use in your fireplaces, only it was used to keep sparks from coming out of the fire chimney on the engine and causing fires along the railroad line. He had finished well before they arrived at the station as planned and was returning to the cab when he noticed a group of small children dart in front of the train some 60 yards ahead. All of them had cleared the rails easily except for one little girl who suddenly froze in fear at the sight of the oncoming train. Casey yelled to Stevenson to reverse the train and yelled to the little girl to get off the tracks in almost the same breath. Realizing that she's still not moving, he raced to the tip of the cow catcher and braced himself on it, reaching out as far as he could to pull the scared little girl from the tracks. And she was completely unharmed. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. There's one thing that most folks don't know about Casey, and that was that he was an avid baseball fan and watched or played in games whenever his schedule allowed him to. During the 1880s, he had played at Columbus, Kentucky, while he was a club support operator in the MO. One Sunday during the summer of 1898, the Water Valley Shop team was scheduled to play the Jackson Shop team, and Casey got to haul the team to Jackson for the game. Coming off a run from Canton, Mississippi to Memphis, Tennessee on the evening of April 29, 1900, Casey and Sim were approached by the station agent. He had a worried look on his face. The engineer of the outgoing train, Sam Tate, had called in sick, and that was way behind. He asked Casey if he would take control of the train and deliver it on time. Casey agreed one, on one condition that he and Sam would use his locomotive to do it. This would have given them a little time to rest as number one was due out at 11.35, but that was life on the railroad and Casey was familiar with the run. They left out of Memphis on the run at 12.50 a.m., 75 minutes behind schedule because of the late arrival of number one. The crew felt that the conditions of the run, including the fast engine and good firemen, a light train, and the rainy or damp weather were ideal for the record-setting run. The weather was foggy at night, reduced visibility, and the run was well known for its tricky curves. Where have we heard that before? Uh Uh-huh. In the first section of the run, Casey drove from Memphis 100 miles south to Granada, Mississippi, with an intermediate water stop at Sardis, Mississippi, over a new section of light and shaky rails at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour. By the time Casey arrived at Granada for another water stop, he had made up 55 minutes of the 75-minute delay. Casey made up another 15 minutes on the 25-mile stretch from Granada to Winona, Mississippi. By the time he got to Durant, Mississippi, Casey was almost on time. He was quite happy about that, saying at one point, Sim, the old girl's got her dancing slippers on tonight, as he leaned on the Johnson bar. 
The Johnson bar was what poured more power to the wheels by releasing more pressure into steam cylinders to the iron horses of the day. It was also known as a reversing lever. At Durant, he received new orders to go to the siding of Goodman, Mississippi, and wait for the number two passenger train to pass and then continue on to Vaughan. He was informed that he would meet local number 26 passenger train at Vaughan, 15 miles south of Goodman. He was told that number 26 was in two sections and would be in siding, so he would take priority over it. With that, Casey pulled out of Goodman only five minutes behind schedule, with 25 miles of fast track ahead. Casey felt that he had a good chance to make it to Canton by 4.05 on the advertised schedule. Nobody had told Casey, in reality, that there were three separate trains were in the, that were in the Vaughan, and the number 83, a double-header freight train, located to the north and headed south, which had been delayed, and the number 72, a long freight train located to the south, headed north. They were both on the side track and uh, east of the main line. The combined length of the two trains were 10 cars longer than the length of the side track, causing some of the cars to be stopped on the main line. A heck of a thing not to be aware of, isn't it? The two sections of the number 26 that Casey was told about had arrived from Canton earlier and required a saw-by maneuver to get to the side track west of the main line. The saw-by maneuver required that the number 83 back up onto the main line in order to allow the number 72 to move forward and pull in its overlapping cars on the main line onto the east track. This would allow the two sections of the number 26 to gain access to the side track, thus clearing the main line. The saw-by maneuver, however, left the rear cars of the 83 overlapping above the north switch and in the main line and in Casey's path. As workers prepared a second saw-by to let Casey pass, an air hose broke on number 72, locking its brakes and leaving the last four cars of number 83 on the main line with no way to warn Casey as he barreled toward the station. At the same time all this was going on, Casey had the train almost back on schedule, who was almost back on schedule and was running at about 75 miles an hour. As Casey and Sim approached the station, they went through a one and a half mile left-hand curve that blocked the view of the station, and that didn't help anything. Sim's view from the left side of the train was a bit better, though, and he was able to to be the first one to see the red lights of the caboose on the main line. He immediately warned Casey, who told him to jump from the train. Sim jumped about 300 feet before Casey's train crashed into the number 83 and was knocked unconscious. The last thing he heard was, as he jumped was the long piercing whistle by Casey to warn everybody in front of the train to get out of the way. Casey was only two minutes behind schedule at this time. Casey reversed the throttle and slammed on the air brakes into the emergency stop position before derailing. He still, or he'd still been able to reduce his speed to about 40 miles an hour before the impact. 
Casey's actions prevented any other serious injury and death. Casey was the only fatality in the collision. His watch stopped at the time of the impact at 3.52 a.m., and his hand still clutched the whistle cord and brake, and his body was pulled from the train. The next morning, Casey's body was transported to Jackson, Tennessee, by the number 26 passenger train. A funeral service was held on May 2, 1900 at St. Mary's Church, where he and Janie had been married 14 years earlier. He was buried in Mount Calvary Cemetery, a record 15 enginemen rode 118 miles from Water Valley to pay their respects. Janie lived on for many years thereafter and never remarried. Casey's children, who had previously shown interest in railroad work, were affected by the accident and the fact that the railroad pretty much set the entire fault of the accident squarely on Casey's shoulders. They were so affected that none of them wanted to pursue a a career in the field. The legend of one of the greatest engineers to sit in the cab of a locomotive still lives on because he was the son of these Appalachian mountains. I hope you've enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow us, please. If you'd like even more episodes of both podcasts and an access to the Deviant Report, which comes out as I collect enough stories to make an episode, Consider becoming a subscriber for $1.99 a month. Just run on over to anchor.fm and have a look at it and receive extra episodes for your subscription. Please join us on Facebook group, Appalachian Murder Mystery uh, or Legend Podcast, where we discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. And I'd like to apologize for my scratchy throat. That was why I was behind a little bit getting things out today. But I did manage to be able to speak again. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian murder mystery or legend, and I'll see you then.